Hello and welcome to Coronavirus The Whole Story. This is week three of a series that tries to understand coronavirus and its impacts through the lens of UCL research and expertise. My name is Vivian Parry, I'm a writer and broadcaster and for today your coronavirus guide. Every week we talk remotely with UCL's researchers about their groundbreaking work and what it can add to our understanding of this crisis. Previously, we've seen what it takes to find out the true extent of coronavirus infection in the population, and we've also taken a look at life in intensive care. And if you didn't hear them, there's still time. Details at the end. Now, this week, we're going to bring you the perspectives of an economist and a geographer specialising in disasters, getting their take on perhaps the most discussed and difficult corona subject of all. What is the exit strategy from lockdown? So let me introduce today's guests. David Alexander is Professor of Risk and Disaster Reduction at the UCL Institute for Risk and Disaster Reduction. He's been researching disasters since 1980 and specialises in emergency planning and management. His department offers, by the way, one of the most intriguing of all UCL degrees and one I want to do, earthquake science with disaster management. Paul Ormerod is an economist, author, entrepreneur, and a visiting professor in the Centre for Decision-Making at UCL. Earlier this month, he and fellow economist Gerard Lyons proposed a traffic light model for ending the lockdown, drawing on research in epidemiology. And I just want to start with a quick question to both of you. We're so used to thinking of this crisis in medical terms. So just briefly describe for me, if you would, how you see this from the perspective of your particular discipline. Well, I've been, I'm an economist, but I've been interested in working in other disciplines for a long time. And in the past, I myself have worked on um, using the analytical framework of epidemiological models. And so my perspective is to look at these models and say, yes, they have genuine scientific value, um, but um they they make they need to make assumptions about behaviour uh, to produce meaningful forecasts, and of course it's behaviour and behavioural change uh, which uh, are the very heart of the discipline of economics. So I think we can add a lot of value uh, both to the forecast and to the policy discussion uh, by bringing this perspective uh, along. My speciality is emergency planning and management, and therefore I tend to see this in terms of emergency planning, which needs to be done on a very broad basis, which is to say we need to look at everything from the epidemiological to the economic and beyond. Um, we need to construct a scenario for what is going on, which should be the basis of planning. The purpose of planning is to apportion responsibilities for doing things, to foresee needs and to work out ways of satisfying those needs when we're in the crisis. Paul, first of all, tell me what you mean by a, a traffic light phased end to lockdown and why do you think this would work? Uh, well, I mean, essentially, this is what the government's uh, carrying out. I notice uh, that the Welsh government have actually explicitly adopted the, 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 the phrase. And what we really mean is a, is a staged process. Um, I mean, things are moving very rapidly in this crisis, and now it might seem obvious that that's the thing to do. But certainly, going back to early April when we put this forward, it wasn't people couldn't see 
uh, a way out. They were really thinking in terms of either there's a lockdown or there isn't. And so what we're saying is uh, we're, we're actually, we, we, we partly experiment, but we're partly guided uh, by the medical evidence, by the epidemiological evidence, as those activities which are at least risk uh, of transmitting the virus. So let me give a, a practical example of the one which is least likely to be open, which would be right at the end of the process, would be um, you know, large crowds, you know, Premier League games with, with full stadiums. Uh, that's something which will come right at the end. The whole lockdown is often presented as being a binary choice, isn't it? Between, on the one hand, lives, on the other hand, livelihoods. But it's really more subtle than that, isn't it? Well, uh, that's another point in which economists spend most of their time uh, working on the idea that there are trade-offs. That uh, For an economist, uh, we see people making trade-offs all the time. Uh, most of these certainly compared to the virus, are wholly trivial. Uh, but when you make a decision to spend money, say, by going to the pub, uh, you're deciding to do that. You're trading that off against some other activity that you could be carrying out. So the whole of economic theory um, is about trade-offs. But certainly from a societal level, um, society makes implicit trade-offs involving lives all the time. And a good example is that of road accidents. So um, currently there are something just under 2,000 road deaths a year in the UK and 25,000 very serious injuries. Now, as a society, we could avoid that if the government abolished motor vehicles. Um, But we don't. We say the benefits, there's a trade-off between the benefits we get from the use of motor vehicles And one of the costs, and there may be others as well, there's all sorts of arguments about pollution, but one of the costs are the deaths and serious injuries which result. Now, of course, you try to minimise those, and that's what successive governments have done. Because if we go back 50 years, uh, then road deaths, when there was much less traffic, uh, road deaths were 8,000 a year. And now they're just under 2,000. The volumes of traffic have increased. Uh, But we make trade-offs in every single minute of our lives, most of which are trivial and some like this are very serious. Now, one of the things that's been proposed quite often is that, you know, we're all in this together. And so therefore, every part of the exit strategy should apply to all groups. Is that a reality, do you think? Or do you think what we'll see is, for instance, younger people getting out of lockdown earlier and perhaps uh, older groups staying at home or certain regions of the UK that don't have much uh, uh, spread of the coronavirus being allowed out from lockdown earlier? Well, I think it's difficult to to make these segmentations. And first of all, I mean, thinking about the, the geographical one, um, it's certainly the case that some of the more remote Scottish islands uh, could it could pr- almost certainly be released from lockdown today because I think on the uh, Western Isles, for example, um, there hasn't been a single case of coronavirus. Uh, so providing they controlled entry through ferries, they could restore full economic activity tomorrow. But the problem on the mainland is, of course, that people travel around. You know, we can't start erecting um, physical barriers between, say, the southwest 
uh, and the southeast or London and anywhere else in the country. So geographical um, segmentation is rather difficult in a, a, a very uh, densely connected uh, country such as the UK. Now, the idea was floated uh, sometime uh, early in the crisis that, say, the 20-year-olds should be released first uh, because they um, have a much lower risk, very much lower risk of, 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 of death. Um, I think there are two points against that, one of which is a purely economic one, um, in that they are, and it's not a criticism of them because, you know, we've all been young, um, they're the least productive part of the um, age cohorts of the labour force and that people in their 40s and 50s um, in general earn a lot more than people in their 20s. Now, when but these they're 20s... also the most economically disadvantaged by this crisis, aren't they? Uh, well, I mean, that's, so that's one of the reasons we should be um, all in it together. But the idea we could release those to revive the economy. But there's also the epidemiological point um, in that uh, for the virus to work through a group completely would take, you know, two or three months um, and so we can't have the rest of the economy um, in a complete standstill, more or less complete standstill, uh, while, while, it's, while uh, the virus spreads through the 20-year-olds, because um, as long as it's there, as soon as the interconnections start up again, um, you know, it will then spread through uh, the rest of the age groups once they're released from lockdown. So I think doing it on, on age grounds is also a bad idea. And the logical way to do it um, is by different economic sectors and judging them by uh, their, 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 their relevance for, for risk in terms of uh, can we contain the virus um, opening in, the, in, successive, in successive stages. But let's go back to your traffic light idea. Often it's also called hold, build and, and, and shield. So the lockdown is, I guess, of course, the, the red light. Where do we go with the amber light? Well, actually, we, we, the way we put it, we said the lockdown is now and the red light is the first phase of release. Um, you know, when, when we look and say, well, small shops. And I think a key point now is that there isn't, we, we, although we suggested some quite detailed um, areas of activity in, in red and amber, um, these are all, always subject to revision because what's become clear is that the British public have learned very rapidly to adapt to their behaviour. Uh, they're not going to revert to um, pre-crisis levels uh, for a long time. And so just they've learned, for example, to queue outside supermarkets. So could they equally learn to queue um, outside garden centres? And that's one thing that could be open or a wide range uh, of small retail outlet, outlets. So that will be the red phase. And then in the amber phase, we were thinking of saying, well, let's make things like, you know, pub, uh, car transport, you know, unlimited. Let's remove restrictions on that. I mean, always with the proviso uh, that if people congregate in large groups at, uh, at beauty spots or beaches or whatever, I mean, that, that will have to be banned, have to be keep, made illegal for, for a long time because it's in such large, it, it is in large gatherings that the propensity to spread the virus is that is it's uh, most acute. Is there a worry that actually it's people's natural intention to to congregate in, in groups and that they will do that once lockdown is, 
is ended and it'll be really very hard. I mean, there are, of course, a dedicated number of people who I suspect will be very wary of any uh, interaction with others for a long time to come. But uh, for a lot of people, it's get out there and resume life as normal. Well, I, I, I don't think that's true, actually. I think most people say they, they've learned really quite rapidly to change their behaviour. I think if we go back to the um, response of the week, in the week of the 16th of March, when uh, the Prime Minister announced, if you like, a purely voluntary compliance, um, people, and this is looking at it through the perspective of economics, uh, many people then chose to make the rational decision to, um, to, 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 to social distance. Um, because here was, a, here was a great deal of uncertainty, an unknown virus, and the data we had coming out of China suggested the death rate might be as high as 3 or 5%. So it's entirely rational to uh, carry out uh, social distancing. And we can see during that week when it was voluntary, um, we can actually see uh, traffic uh, use started to decline quite rapidly. And there's some interesting uh, work from a centre at Oxford showing that respiratory diseases of all kinds, not just a virus, of all kinds also started to fall sharply during that week, indicating that people were you know, acting rationally on the basis of the information they were given. Um, and that information sets evolved, uh, but they can still see that the virus is a serious risk. And uh, it will be extremely surprising if uh, the majority of people uh, revert to pre-crisis behaviour. But taking up your point that obviously there are attractions to people um, of being uh, in large gatherings. That's a natural human tendency. And this is the primary uh, this is a primary danger in terms of the gradual release from lockdown. So that's why, um, along with Gerard Lyons, I was suggesting initially relatively small scale activities or one in which social distancing and queuing might work. Let's say, give the example of garden centres again, and only gradually um, starting to uh, allow larger gatherings to, uh, to, to, to build up. Um, and that will be a key message to try and get across to people. It's there that you're most at risk that somebody with the virus in a large crowd could easily infect, infect eight or ten people in the space of a few hours. Do you think people, though, the longer lockdown goes on, the less compliant they become? Um, well, we can see some fraying of the lockdown. And certainly that was a big concern um, in, in, early, in, in the middle of March, that um, a former compulsory lockdown uh, wouldn't last very long. But now, here we are six weeks into it. And there's still very considerable support for the lockdown. And we can see, you know, changes at the margin. But I think these changes are people, again, acting really quite sensibly because they've worked out. Like I say, they're thinking, well, if we, if we can queue outside a supermarket, why can't we do a queue outside different retail outlets? Why can't we queue? And I see, um, even though the lockdown, uh, that... Uh, uh, companies like Greggs and McDonald's are opening uh, and Costa Coffee and people say well we can queue there as well in just the same way we've learned how to do this we've learned how to adapt to the new environment 
and presumably they're hoping that as the months go by, uh, that will change. But for the time being, uh, they're willing to participate in that um, through having learned appropriate behaviour. How long can we carry on doing this without completely destroying the economy and people's livelihoods? Well, I mean, the answer is not very long. Um, that I mean, the data at the moment is still um, uncertain. Um, economic data um, comes in uh, with, a, with a lag. So we don't know exactly what the, what the impact's been. Um, but we can, it does look as if uh, the slump in output has been the biggest since the Bank of England's... The Bank of England has a database of output going back 300 years, and it looks as if this is the biggest single fall already uh, in that 300-year history. Uh, and clearly that can't go on for very long. And this is, this is a key point, going back to your, uh, uh, the discussion on, on the trade-offs between the economy uh, and, if you like, health and lives that unless you have a functioning economy and people are generating income out of which they pay taxes, um, it doesn't take very long before there can't be a health service. There can't be schools and all the other public services on which we rely. So the stark fact is, I mean, it's not economists being brutal or inhumane. The stark fact is we do need uh, a revival of the economy precisely in order to be able to continue to uh, finance and provide the health service. So in your view, or your opinion as an economist, um, when do you think that we should be instituting some going back? When would you end the lockdown? Presuming that we've got the, we, we've got the, the uh, number of cases are beginning to drop very substantially. Early mid-May, because we can see um, that the number of deaths are falling. Now, the number of the number of new cases is we have to be very careful with this data because, uh, in part, uh, identified new cases will simply reflect um, higher levels of testing. So we have to be very careful with that. Uh, but we can see uh, the death data has clearly uh, passed its peak. We can look at um, bed occupancy in the NHS. Uh, with people suffering from the virus. And the country's moving at slightly different rates, uh, but the London data suggests that the number of people in ho hospitalised with the virus is now half the level of its peak. So uh, once these things start to fall, just the mathematics of epidemiology say that they will actually fall really quite quickly. And so within two or three weeks' time, you know, they'll, be, it'll be, they'll be very much lower. Uh, and that will be the time to start reviving economic activity properly. Just a last question here. Are there things that you've seen happening in other countries as they've ended their lockdowns that you think that either we shouldn't do or alternatively that we should do because they've worked very well? Uh, well, one thing that I've been very keen on uh, for uh, uh, since the middle of March, since I read some of the medical evidence, is that wearing face coverings, in the general public does seem to be very effective in preventing the spread of the virus. Um, we can see the evidence from South Korea, but also much less well-known is the Czech Republic and Slovakia, which have had much lower infection rates. And apart from health professionals, who obviously you know, are people who are widely exposed to large numbers of people, 
for the general public, the idea of a face covering, not a surgical mask, uh, a face covering is not to protect you from from the virus, is to protect other people from you in case you've got it. Because when you sneeze uh, the, or cough, the droplets will spread and infect people and some sort of face covering uh, uh uh, helps to helps to, to prevent that. And even though I'm not a medic, the evidence, just looking at the empirical evidence, I mean, it seems overwhelming uh, that this should be the advice. And I find it absolutely staggering uh, that the government scientific advisors have not come out much more clearly uh, in favour of this policy uh, in terms of helping Britain get back to work and help prevent the spread of the virus. So released in stages wearing our masks. Thanks very much for that, Paul. Now, you're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. It's a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. And if there's a question about coronavirus that you'd like our researchers here at UCL to answer, please do email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. Now, unfortunately, David, you were explaining that your perspective was about planning, but we seem to have got here and the planning doesn't seem to have been uh, much in evidence. There was obviously some, but, you know, not to the extent that we needed it. So where are we now and how do we get out of this? Right. Well, um in an emergency, there are three elements. There are the plans, the procedures, and improvisation. The plans orchestrate the procedures. Improvisation needs to be somewhat minimized. It can't be ruled out because unnecessary improvisation is inefficient, and indeed it might even amount to negligence. Now, we had a pretty good scenario for the last, well, at least 12 years on what would happen if a major pandemic occurred. Uh, we've also had a number of smaller pandemics, SARS, MERS, even Ebola. And these have strengthened that scenario, but actually what the scenario tends to lack is an indication of just how we do get out of this. And one thing that is clear from looking at past pandemics and previous history, is that getting out of this will be a slow process. The pandemic influenza that occurred from 1918 to 1920 lasted 24 months in the world and about 14 months in Europe. But the recovery from it took at least five years. Now, that was partly because the world was also recovering from the First World War. People were exhausted and so were economies and so on. But it was also because it is a very difficult process to recover from these things. Economies needed to be rebuilt and they will need to be rebuilt this time. For example, if you think of tourism, I think it will be some time before international tourism gets going. Tourism will probably restart with local and national tourism before international tourism really gets underway. And we need to ask what sort of state the international air transportation industry will be in after all of this. And that is by no means clear, except that the forecasts by ICAO and IATA have been somewhat bleak. So let's turn from air travel, which is you know on the distant horizon for many, to the more pressing 
and immediate questions of how we get out of lockdown. What are your thoughts there? What have we learned from other emergencies? One thing we have to bear in mind is that there could be a second wave. In the second wave of influenza in 1918 to 1920, in fact, the second wave was more lethal than the first wave. Now, I am not saying that that is going to happen this time, but it is always something that could occur perhaps in the autumn, which might mean that we need to go into reverse. In other words, rather than um, loosening up lockdown, we need to tighten it up in the opposite direction. Uh, when lockdown is gradually released, it will have to be a slow process and it will have to begin with those activities that are least likely to produce a surge in infection rates. Now, I think we can um, allow access to, uh, for example, shops, offices, industries where social distancing can be maintained and where there are not likely to be huge concentrations of people. I think the last to be um, involved in, in the release of lockdown will be, for example, theatres and cinemas and things like that, mass gathering and the sort of sporting fixtures where people arrive in very large numbers. These are potentially epidemiological bombs if we still have a substantial or a significant risk of infection. So there are some ways around that. For example, we already see plays being performed online and so on. And matches could be, football matches, for example, could be played in stadia that are empty, uh, but transmitted on television and uh, by social media and so on. Uh, so that is all part of the gradual process of getting back to normal. Um, but during this time, we need to keep up indeed to um, improve the rate of testing, tracing and tracking. Uh, the epidemiological um, monitoring and control side of this and we need to make sure that we have a very clear idea of what the disease is doing and on that basis if any of the relaxation um, means actually do lead to a resurgence of COVID then they can be reversed, they would need to be reversed. Are you with uh, people who've said that actually if we have to go back into a lockdown, that will be even more damaging for the economy? Well, I think it would, yes. Um, it already is extremely damaging. Um, we've also had this uh, very almost bizarre situation where we've gone from an ideological point of view that many governments were uh, downsizing welfare and health systems, or at least beginning to starve them of uh, funds, and there was um, um, austerity and so on, into a situation where they're forced to say that they love welfare and they love health systems, and money is no object at all of this. Um, and of course, that has to be funded, and that that's very difficult at a time where revenue has contracted as much as it has. So um, I, I do feel for politicians who are crushed between the rock of the disease and the and the shutdown, the lockdown, and the hard place of the economic stringency at a time when everybody is shouting at them to spend more. Um, it is curious to see this abrupt. Uh, change into a sort of Keynesian uh, um, New Deal type of uh, economy that we're having now. Um, one wonders how long that can be sustained given the immense costs of it. 
But one thing, one message is very clear in all of this, and that is that it requires international action in many respects, not merely medically, but also for the economy, at a time when countries have suddenly become very inward-looking. They've tended to close their borders. International trade has been curtailed. To get us back to normal, it needs to be massively ramped up. Um, International migration has dwindled to almost nothing. And yet, for example, there are sectors like agriculture, which have been dependent on migratory labor. And agriculture is part of the critical infrastructure of any country, the food supply chain, and so on. In a country like Britain, once described as being four meals away from anarchy, it produces only half the food that it consumes. It is therefore critically dependent on food importation and on a supply chain that extends well outside the UK borders. So in fact, we could say that getting an economy back on track depends also on how economies are got back on track in other countries. And China, for example, has a pivotal role in this. And we'll see what happens there in terms of international trade. So, David, I mean, this is an odd phrase to use, but you've seen a lot of disasters in your time. I mean, it's, you know, disasters are your stock in trade, as it were, and the subject of your research. But where, what are the things that you have seen that have contributed to the quickest recovery times? Um, that is somewhat dependent on the type of society and the type of economy. Uh, for example, it does tend to differ between poor countries and rich countries quite considerably. However, I think one factor that is absolutely vital is democracy, democratic participation. Um, I've been studying disasters for 40 years and uh, with uh, a very learned expert, Professor Ian Davis, in 2015, we wrote and published a book called Recovery from Disaster. In which You're the we man include... we need. You're the man we need. <laughs> well, possibly so, uh, except that by and large, we were dealing with disasters and with experience that was really rather different to what we're dealing with now, uh, not in all its details, but in its overall picture and its scope. Most disasters are local, regional, national. Um, they may be international, but not at the scale of something that is truly global, as we are seeing here. Nevertheless, it still requires democratic participation. That is to say, we all need to have a say in how recovery occurs. We all need to feel that we are involved in that process. We all need to feel that we bear responsibility for it. Uh, that is true of risk as well, but it is very much true of recovery, that it's something we all have to do. We all have to participate in if it is to work. And in fact, if it is something that is imposed, we know very well that many top-down solutions to disaster fail to reach the local level, or they simply don't work at the local level. Bottom-up is pretty important in all of this because disasters have, however large they are, as their theatre of operations, the local area no matter how large they are. And that means the recovery is a local issue. It's something that must occur locally. Now, it must also occur nationally and internationally and regionally and so on. But if it doesn't occur locally, it really matters not what is happening at the other scales, because it means effectively it's not happening at all if it's not happening locally. Fascinating. And I want to finish by 
asking something about emergency planning. Now, you've written the book about the recovery, but you've also written the book about emergency planning. And we will have our minds focus very sharply now on the need to ensure in the future that we do indeed plan for all types of emergency. But of course, we'll be doing it at a time when the public purse is very much depleted. How do you think we'll prepare for the future and how will this change what we do? First and foremost, um, emergency planning is as much an art as a science. And in many respects, it's the art of organised common sense. Now, perhaps it is difficult, uh, but if it's difficult, it's largely because it requires one to remember so many different factors. I'm currently, for example, trying to compile a codified record of what's going on in COVID from an emergency planning point of view. And that involves looking across an enormously wide range of things that are happening and circumstances. We're also in the age of cascading disasters, which means that disasters have network effects and they have chain effects through society. And we have to recognise that we are networked societies. And therefore, what goes on in one place can have substantial influences in other places, in other sectors, in other realms, in many different ways. And this we need to study and to incorporate in the planning. Um, however, the first thing about planning is it does not have to be terribly expensive in as much as if it is organised common sense. Well, let's get down and think through what could happen. And planning, emergency planning is about what can we do with the resources we've got. Now, what it does tend to do is to tell you, well, you ought to have more resources than they ought to be of this kind. OK, uh, well, that in its own right might be helpful. It might be useful. It might be important and so on. But the first thing we have to do when we sit down to do an emergency plan is to say, well, let's find out what resources we've got and let's work out how to put them to best use. For example, one thing that wasn't done, despite having had about 15 years in which to plan for this, and there are specific reasons why I say that, despite that, um, not only was there inadequate stockpiling of resources to manage this emergency in the UK, um, if you're not going to have stockpiling, then you need agreements to be able to create, to um, produce and to distribute the equipment and the materials that need to be produced at a, a high rate in order to satisfy demand. We could indeed, we did indeed, we should have known what the demand was for certain things such as respirators, masks and gowns and things like that. The next question is, okay, if we haven't got them, where would we get them in a hurry in an emergency in a crisis situation? And how would we get them? How would we manage to convert production can we not go to a company and say, look, in the instance, in the event that there's another pandemic, would you be willing to convert your production from um, clothing or whatever it is to producing gowns or something like that? I mean, we've even got Gucci in, in Florence, uh, where I am at present, uh, has turned from fashion production into producing face masks and things like that. So, in fact, a bit of human ingenuity, but what it requires is programming and planning in order to get into gear and to be ready. It's all about readiness. That's so interesting. I mean, I was involved in the 2009 pandemic planning uh, for swine flu. And uh, then we, we put in our orders for 
vaccines and we put in our orders for antivirals and we got hugely criticised for having spent too much money on procurement when, of course, had it been as bad as we all anticipated at the beginning, uh, there wouldn't have been that uh, criticism. But I think these are things always looked at with a retroscope. Uh, and I think we will have to focus, as you suggest, far more on planning for the future. It's been such a pleasure having you here today and indeed Paul Ormrod as well. And You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, and this episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by Keris Bradley. Our guests today were Professors David Alexander and Paul Ormerod. And if you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone. Join me soon for yet another fascinating set of insights on coronavirus, the whole story.